Welcome to the University of Washington's Political Economy Forum. We bring together diverse scholars, policymakers, and citizens to discuss current public policy issues, to inform the public about them, and to find evidence-based solutions. Feel free to visit our website at uwpoliticaleconomy.com. We publish new episodes of this podcast every week. If you have questions or suggestions for discussion topics, please contact us on Twitter at ForumUW or email us at uwpoliticaleconomy at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. Hello, my name is Nicholas Wittstock, and today's episode is my conversation with Marius Busemeyer. Marius Busemeyer is Professor of Political Science with a focus on comparative political economy at the University of Konstanz, Germany. And we speak about education and vocational training systems, both of which are currently discussed quite often in public policy circles, uh, with many people arguing that education must be improved in some way to allow people to adapt to a new technological regime and to qualify them for new jobs in the face of outsourcing and automation. But how do education systems currently work? And how could they be adapted? Slash, What would be the implication of that? All of these questions are the object of our discussion, and I'm sure you'll enjoy it. Hello, Marius Busemeyer. Hello. Nice to have you on the podcast. Uh, recently, we've been speaking a lot about um, public policy implications of technology, and these discussions always, at some point, get to this point of saying, we need more investment in education, but that's really the extent of the conversation that we've had so far. So I thought there is really not a better person than you to have on because uh, you're an expert on education policy. Or you're definitely the person to ask on comparative research on educational vocational training systems. So I was um, going to start with a very broad question. How is education and training currently organized across advanced capitalist democracies? Well, thanks, of, uh, of course, first for the, for the praise. I'm very happy to be here and uh, to talk to you about these important issues. Uh, and you're right, education is in many ways at the front of the discussions about the implications of technological change and digitalization. And so it's, it's a very crucial topic. And I would say that, uh, uh, as usual, things are more complex the closer you look. And, and, and that's, that's a discussion that I look forward to getting into more with you. Uh, about the differences, I mean, I think the, there are really broad differences in how education and skill formation works in the US compared to European countries. Uh, and here I'm just, you know, of course, there are other countries, East Asia and uh, Australia mm -hmm. and so on. But I'm just going to focus a little bit more on the US-European comparison here. Um, and maybe the UK is, uh, is a case that's obviously for many reasons closer to the US in that regard, especially in that regard now that tuition fees have increased quite significantly in recent years in the UK and a little bit further away from, from the other European countries. So one very important obvious difference is the financing of education. And here I would say that the, according to the logic also of path dependency that we know so well in comparative political economy, that the differences between these education systems have actually become even more increased over the years uh, or more enhanced over the years, over the past years, in the sense that you see um, tuition increases, especially for higher education in, in the United States, And then also the UK, as I said, and most European countries, you still have uh, very low or quasi non-existent tuition fees in some countries, Scandinavian countries, even subsidies, very generous subsidies for students to go to university. And so that's, all, that's already a very important difference, I would say, uh, regarding the financing of education and uh, the share of private and public sources of funding. And in my previous research on education and inequality, I've looked at the role of that factor for 
inequality, and it's one of the very important variables that affect inequality. So the higher the share of private education funding, the higher levels of inequality are. And of course, that's not the strict causal mm-hmm. uh, argument here, but it's more of a correlational associational argument. But I think it's, it's, very, it's a very powerful and very important one. So that's one important difference. And the second important difference is the relationship between vocational training and academic education. And in that regard, actually, the UK is actually pretty close, much closer to the European countries than than the United States, because even in in the UK, you have increasingly attempts, also repeatedly attempts, uh, and people like David Soskis have been writing about this for decades, actually, uh, where the UK has tried to expand and improve and revitalize apprenticeship training, other forms of vocational training, without not without uh, yeah without getting being really success, successful here. But I would say uh, if you just look at this from a broad picture perspective, uh, the role of vocational training is is much more important in European skill formation systems than in the US skill formation system, because and yes, it's all about college, right? Um, and yeah. even those. Um, and even those uh, uh, colleges that are more applied, more vocationally oriented, they are still very much, I mean, of course, they are called colleges. These are community colleges or all sorts of other colleges. So in terms of the thinking of people, they are part of the tertiary education system, not necessarily vocational training. And also in terms of financing, they are financed by tuition fees, for instance, and hardly very expensive tuition fees. And vocational training in European countries is, uh, in contrast to that, much more part of the secondary school system, post-secondary education, and uh, much closer, especially in the countries like Germany, Switzerland, Austria, which have uh, dual apprenticeship training, much closer to the actual labor market actors and the labor market needs. And also in terms of the cost sharing, much more favorable towards the apprentices and individuals taking these these courses. Because, you know, for instance, in Germany, you get a wage as an apprenticeship and you don't have to pay tuition fees, even though the actual content of the training may not be that different. So that's these are the two, I would say, from a bird's eye perspective, two of the most important differences between US and Europe, the financing, private versus public, and the, the, the relationship between academic, higher education, and vocational training. You've mentioned some change in passing there because at least in the US, to the extent that I experienced this, people are constantly talking about changes to the education system in one way or another. To what extent have these systems, uh, if you compare European and the American system broadly, to what extent have they um, diverged or converged over the last, say, 20 years, especially in the context of um, an increasing reliance on tertiary education? Yeah, that's a very good question. So um, I would say there is, if you want to find one sentence to describe what's going on, you could say continued divergence uh, on the background of a common trend. Uh, And the common trend, obviously, is, as you say, the expansion of tertiary education. I mean, this has been the one, if not the major development trend in education in the past 30, 40 years, uh, the expansion of tertiary education. And that's, of course, rooted in the educational aspirations of people, they want to improve educational opportunities for themselves or for their children. So there's a big demand for, for more access to higher education on the part of parents and students, but also on the part of firms who need the high-skilled people to face challenges such as digitalization. So that's, that's a pretty clear overall trend. But given the, the different institutional arrangements that you can find in the countries, 
uh, you can see that these path dependencies interact with this common trend in different ways. Mm -hmm. uh, so as I mentioned in the US, uh, I would say there are other scholars who have pointed this out. Think of, for instance, Golding and Katz's work on the race between education and technology. That in the US, it seems that increasingly the, this trend of educational expansion has reached an upper limit. So that there's a ceiling effect uh, that you can see um, where basically there is little further growth in, in tertiary enrollment because there, there is not much room to grow any further. And there are increasingly these cost constraints, uh, especially for people coming from, from lower socioeconomic backgrounds. Mm -hmm. um, so that's that's one development trend here. And then the the wealth over which this has then uh, expressed itself is the or the channel is the is the rising tuition fees because the price of higher education is going up. And in, in Europe, I would say, especially in Germany, the development is more of a diversification within both the higher education system, but also in the relationship between vocational training and academic higher education. So this is coming more from a German perspective. What you can see here is starting in the 70s, you have more of a diversification within tertiary education. You have the traditional academic research-oriented institutions on the one hand, and then you have the more... Uh, vocationally oriented or, or uh, institutions like university of universities of applied sciences that are a little bit closer to the labor market needs. Uh, and then you have a, a plethora of other institutions on, on lower levels that combine academic theoretical training with vocational training in different ways. And in Germany, the, the quite strong trend in the past years has been the flexibilization of this boundary between vocational training and academic higher education. So to make it easier for vocationally trained people to go uh, to university, to set up new uh, curricula, new educational programs uh, that combine academic education with vocational training, the so-called dual study programs, um, which are actually quite similar to what you can see in com some community colleges in the United States. And, and so on that level, there is a little bit of convergence because you see more, more diversification within the uh, higher education sector, but still uh, these these big differences that I mentioned before, the public-private relationship and the uh, vocational training, higher education relationship, these things actually stay quite quite constant and may become even more pronounced due to these, these changes, despite the overarching trend. There is a somewhat um, influential literature in uh, comparative political economy, which is varieties of capitalism. That literature effectively argues that these uh, the skill formation system or education system of different countries maps onto in some way the dominant economic sectors of, of those countries. What exactly shapes the demand for these different kinds of systems, right? They don't just fall out of the sky. So I was wondering, do you feel like this differentiation between liberal market economies, which is maps onto the United States and the UK, and coordinated market economies, the paradigmatic example being Germany, to what extent is that still true in a more knowledge-oriented economy in the 21st century? No, I think the, the basic differentiation between uh, liberal market economies and coordinated market economies still holds, I would say. Um, but of course, we've made a lot of advances in, in the 20 years since the uh, publication of Hall and Soskis' mm -hmm. Varieties of Capitalism book in, in 2001. Um, and I would say the basic argument that, that they've made back then is, is still true. Um, so that economic interest also shape uh, the way the welfare state works, shape the way skill formation systems work, uh, and that there's a direct impact of these economic imperatives or economic concerns on 
the way skill formation institutions uh, work and how they are reformed and how they adjust to economic pressures. I mean, one, con one common uh, criticism of the VOC literature was that it, it's too uh, functionalist and too economic. And I would say um, that's, that's, that's also a valid argument. And so I think a lot of people, including myself, have uh, added a political component to, to all this. So I would say economic interests matter, of course, in the politics of education reform, but they are not the only game in town. So mm -hmm. there are other actors with other potentially conflicting interests that might affect this. Party politics obviously plays a big role here, right? Um, so the, the educational aspirations, especially of the people in lower socioeconomic uh, strata, they may be amplified by left-wing parties. Centrist parties may put a little bit more emphasis on the economic interests and so on. So we all know that also from the party politics literature. And I would say there have been quite successful attempts to bring together the VOC perspective with this more political perspective on how different actors uh, influence education reforms. And the second point here is that I think another big development in this field is to simply pay more attention to variation in the group of uh, co coordinated market economies. Because I would say, if you just look at the original classification of countries, the LMEs are a relatively coherent uh, set of countries. Uh, but even there, I, I already previously noted that there are some important differences between the US and the UK, for instance, with regard to vocational training. And so on. There, there are also some attempts to explore variation in skill formation uh, institutions within liberal market economies. For instance, doctoral researcher in my group, Yanis uh, Vosek, has written his dissertation about this, uh, and showing that there are really strong differences between the way Aust Australia and Ireland, for instance, approach VET policies compared to the UK. So, of course, the more you zoom in, the more differences you see. But still, I would say there's a case to be made that within the group of CMEs, which is in the original framework, a really large group, there are quite some, some um, differences and different skill formation systems. Um, and many people have contributed to this. But in my own reading, I would say um, there are at least three different skill formation systems within the large group of coordinated market economies. Uh, one is the more uh, coordinated, I mean, the, we call it collective skill formation regime, which is uh, this... Uh, the paradigmatic case of Germany with the dual apprenticeship training system, Switzerland, Austria, to some extent, Netherlands, uh, Denmark, uh, which is characterized by high degree of cooperation uh, between unions and employers. But this is actually a pretty fragile system because this cooperation between these different stakeholders is always uh, fragile and contingent on um, yeah, the willingness of these actors to actually cooperate with each other. And also to reap the economic benefits of, of cooperation, which is again may change uh, due to globalization and digitalization. So, this is something that is not sustained automatically. It has to be continuously maintained and sustained. So that's that's one thing. Um, then there is the the more status skill formation systems of um, say France, but also some Scandinavian countries, especially Finland, but also Sweden. Um, that is much more centered on, on school-based vocational training uh, and public uh, provision of higher education, a strong component of public spending. And, and that's quite different from, from, the, from the collective system. And finally, that's what we call the segmentalist system, where skill formation is much more geared towards firm-specific needs and firm-specific mm -hmm. uh, skills. What are some of the main conflicts of interests when it comes to organizing a skill formation education system, very broadly construed? Yeah, I would say the big cleavage in the history of uh, skill formation systems, if you if you just look for 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 starters at the relationship between employers 
and workers or unions as their institutionalized representatives. A big question is about labor mobility or the mobility of skills, I would say, and how to certify different kinds of skills. Because um, if you if you go back to the original version of Gary Becker's human capital theory, the big difference here is obviously between general skills, on the one hand, that, that can be applied in very different uh, settings uh, to the same extent, and in very specific skills that are tied to a specific firm. And then the, the bargaining game or the conflict, basically, is about who shares, uh, who care, or who carries the costs for which kind of skills in, in, in a way. So the workers, of course, have a generic interest in having general skills paid for by the employer or by somebody else, by the state, for instance. Whereas the firms have a strong interest in uh, firm-specific skills that essentially the worker pays for herself. Uh, for instance, via tuition fees or via lower wages or something like that. So that's that's uh, at the this kind of conflict about the division of costs uh, for which kind of skills. That's I would say at the at the core of uh, conflicts about skill formation. And, and and there are different different skill formation systems have found different answers to this. The collective skill formation system essentially works out uh, as a as a bargain about this. And because of the strong corporatist institutions that are uh, buffering this. This is a kind of long-term commitment game, I would say, uh, and it works because the actors trust each other and the workers are integrated into firms as uh, social contacts and so on. And in, in a liberal market economy, this is a, a more market-based relationship and a more conflictual relationship potentially because this bargain is a little bit less sustainable or less stable over, over, over the long term. And so the interesting thing is, and I think at that point, uh, the original VOC framework was a little bit misleading because the, I would say the, the really comparative advantage of the collective skill formation systems is not so much that they provide specific skills as it, as it was originally argued in the VOC literature, but it, it's rather that they provide transferable skills. So skills that are somewhere in between general and specific skills that can be applied in different firm contexts and in different work contexts. But that are that are a little bit more specific than than those that you would get at an academic or school-based uh, training course. So this is the the secret of the comparative advantage of the system. And because they are transferable, the question is then how do you get employers to invest in these kinds of skills that the workers could, in theory, carry to another employer and make potentially better wages with this? And that only works if you have strong coordination institutions that prevent wage drift, that that ensure that there is uh, wage bargaining and so on. And um, in contrast, if you look at the liberal market economies, you have a pretty strong separation, actually, between the provision of general skills in schools or colleges, on the one hand, that are very general and maybe a little bit too academic. And then you have very specific skills in the form of on-the-job training in, in the firms. And that's kind of the market equilibrium if you don't have these coordinating institutions that, that might uh, encourage uh, bargaining between the different actors. And so I think that's, that's one example of how different skill formation institutions solve or address that fundamental conflict between workers and employers about skills. One challenge or one task of these systems, obviously, is also then to dynamically adapt to the creation or the um, emergence of new industries, which then potentially have new skill demands, right? So the big change that we're talking about implicitly right now is obviously the shift to much more knowledge-intensive production in different forms. Are there any specific instances in which this change has worked well? And are there any instances where it hasn't worked at all, in your opinion? Yeah, that's a very good question. And I think 
again, it's actually a long-held debate because uh, even back, you know, back in the 80s and 90s, of course, we also had technological change. It was, uh, especially in the 90s, was uh, basically a period where, you know, the first wave of digitalization really hit the labor market. And so there, back then, there were already large debates about is the collective skill formation system in Germany, is it able to, to change, to adapt to, this, to these new circumstances? And I would say, uh, exactly, it's an open question because on the one hand, you could say, well, because it's so close to the needs of the labor market actors, it's actually quite easy to adapt to these changing skill needs because they have direct impact in the uh, design of these training curricula. They, they have direct say into the design of uh, school-based curricula and so on. So that's a big advantage. But on the other hand, you could say, well, these could be also vested interests. So there are actors that might defend their old uh, occupations against the rise of new occupations, because this is not just about individual workers, this is about associations. And sometimes associations are organized to protect certain occupational fields, certain professional identities. And if there are large changes going on, they might become too tied to the past, uh, too much tied to the past, defending the old occupational structure and not being able to open their minds for change. So that, that it could go both ways. And so back then, actually, there were a lot of critics that, that said, well, um, this is the end of the German training system. But actually, in the years after this, it, it showed that the system was able to, to adopt quite successfully because there, was, there were learning processes taking place. So for instance, the process of updating these training curricula uh, proceeded much, much faster in recent years compared to the, the 1980s, for instance. Also, I guess, because the labor market actors really felt the pressure um, that, that something needs to change or otherwise the system is really threatened fundamentally. And uh, new associations came up that represented uh, the new occupational fields. And so the, the, the corporatist structure was adopted to take on these new sectors. But I think in other countries, this has uh, maybe worked less well. Uh, in Austria, for instance, the apprenticeship system has rather been more and more confined to the traditional parts of the economy. And the newer uh, sectors or the growing sectors of the economy are moving more towards school-based, vocational education and academic education, higher education a little bit like this, it's, uh, you can also see in, in Denmark. So it's it's not something that happens automatically, but it, it needs to be renegotiated and, and uh, every time. So I would say currently, what we see currently in Germany is that uh, the new response is also to reform the training occupations, but also to really um, expand these mixed uh, mixed system, the hybrid systems between vocational that bring together vocational and academic education. Uh, and that's the kind of uh, the response that we see for the current wave of technological change. So it's a little bit different from the past. And it, it basically, it's an academization of vocational training to some extent. But what you can also see at the same time is actually a vocationalization of academic education as universities are becoming increasingly challenged to provide skills that are really needed on the labor market and not mm. just some arcane degree and whatever uh, that doesn't re that doesn't really have any labor market value so it's a little bit of a move uh, uh, from both sides uh, and that's that's how it happens uh, in Germany if you compare this to a market-based system like the US I would say here that the faith in the market process is, is such that you'd say well the market itself the market the education market it's an actual education market that will adjust to the demands both from the students as well as from the firms uh, that need certain types of skills. And so there's a self, kind of self-correcting mechanism that works via prices, aka tuition fees, 
And I would say to some extent that's probably that probably works. It's, it's a very flexible system that can react fast to changing skill needs. But on the other hand, there are of course uh, market failures uh, possible mm. if, for instance, uh, have um, uh, for-profit education uh, that is booming in the US as well, where people really try to get a college degree uh, at every cost, uh, getting into debt for uh, to high levels of debt without really any realistic chance of paying that off with the jobs that they get afterwards and, and the expansion of uh, training on education opportunities in jobs that are not really demanded on the labor market, but maybe really, really liked by the people uh, who, who would, would like to do them, for instance, beauty clinics or uh, wellness trainers or what have you. So, I mean, this is not guaranteed that the, that the market system always works better compared to this more coordinated collective system. So uh, it's, it's, a, it's an empirical matter and you have to, and it's not something that, that oh, it's decided anew in every wave of technological change, I would say. And currently yeah. in Germany, the challenge is really to bring these different parts of the system together. And I, I think in the US, the big challenge is more how to prevent uh, the cost spiral from getting out of control. Right. In your 2020 book, um, where you analyze the uh, impact of public opinion on uh, education spending, and you point out that pretty much everyone wants more or better, at least, investment in, in education, but that means very different things to different political parties and to different people as well. Um, can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, so that's that's one of the 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 well, that is the core puzzle that motivated us to pursue that that book and that project, namely that uh, you know education is very popular across the board. Many people like it. Uh, if you listen to uh, politicians' campaigns, it's always about education, especially as you said in the beginning. Uh, this is the this is the only thing we can do in order to to meet the challenges of digitalization. So we have to invest in education. And then if you look at the the actual policy output, you see uh, a lot of divergence across countries, a lot of divergence also across political parties, how, how strongly they emphasize education compared to other things. And, and you see, of course, that it's very difficult for education to compete with other areas of the welfare state when it, comes, when it, when it really comes to this distributional conflict between different parts of the welfare state. And so in a way, that was our motivation to pursue this further, to understand what is the role of public opinion really here and how does it compete with interest groups? How does it compete with um, party politics in shaping education reforms? And one part of the answer I would, I would full, fully agree with you is that different, different political parties, different political actors disagree what is good education, obviously. So left-wing uh, party politicians would rather invest in, say, higher education and early childhood education to, to promote education opportunities or subsidies for students. Right-wing politicians often rather prefer to expand private uh, investment in education and also to some extent support the expansion of vocational training because of their close connections to business. And so that's, that's, that's already one part of the explanation. The other part of the explanation is uh, the role of fiscal trade-offs. And this is also a very important component of that project, and we've written a few papers um, on, on fiscal policy trade-offs with the data that we used in that, or that we collected in that project, which is a uh, which was a huge um, public opinion survey in Western European countries. And here you can see quite clearly that um, this broad support for education actually shrinks considerably once the people are confronted with the reality that this might require tax increases that it already goes down from something like 75, 80% uh, 
support to <laughs> about 50%, so just barely a majority that's still in favor of education spending. But when you mention, okay, maybe we have to cut back other parts of the welfare mm. state to finance this, then it's just 25% or even less that would still support this. And actually, I mean, just as a side note, this is really brand new data. Uh, we've replicated or I've replicated this, this kind of survey experiment uh, with new data that on healthcare that we collected in the context of um, a survey here done in Constance on the relationship between the corona pandemic and inequality. And um, so basically, I used the same setup, ask for support uh, for healthcare spending, then look at how that changes when people are confronted with different fiscal trade-offs. And the interesting thing here is, or the motivation was that that we found in our previous study that support for additional spending on healthcare is sort of on the same high level as support for education spending. So it was is a good comparative uh, case. Um, and here in this in this new data, we see uh, the same pattern basically. So support goes down when you mention tax increases. Support goes further down when you mention cutbacks. But the Variation is much less pronounced in the case of healthcare. And of course, in the corona pandemic, people care about healthcare spending. So whereas in the education example, uh, in the worst case, support goes down to something like 25%. In, in the healthcare example, support goes only down to about 50% if, mm. if this be traded off against cutbacks in other parts of the welfare state. In short, that means um, support for healthcare spending seems to be a little bit more robust. I mean, you have to be careful because it's different samples and so on. But still, I think there's a pattern here. Support for healthcare seems to be a little bit more robust than education. And that's, I would say, because education has much more long-term implications. Um, of course, there are short-term benefits to education. If you are a parent, if you're a teacher, there are a lot of short-term benefits for this. But for a lot of people in the population, there are other social policies that provide much more uh, short-term benefits, right. especially something like healthcare, especially in the, in the context of a pandemic. And so the problem here is then I think partly also on the level of, of uh, uh, preferences that, that people are, that support for education is more fragile compared to uh, healthcare uh, and other uh, areas of the welfare state because it provides more long-term benefits, relatively speaking, less short-term benefits. And so that's the challenge, I think, for policymakers who want to adopt um, the current system, the current welfare states to, to, the, to the knowledge economy. They know they want to invest in or they should expand investment in, uh, in, in education and social investment policies. But it's very difficult uh, in, in, a, in an environment where there's a lot of fiscal, fiscal austerity and fiscal constraints because you have to get the money from somewhere. And that, that's, that's where it becomes difficult. In a recent paper of yours with uh, Kathleen Thielen, um, you discuss the business power in, um, well, you use educational systems as an example. I think you're making a bit more of a general point there. Could you discuss this for our listeners in the context of education systems again? Have recent reforms amplified business power? Yeah, I mean, I think um, uh, the overall trend is uh, yes. Uh, and there are various uh, reasons for this. So I think the, um, one part of the explanation is digitalization, uh, and actually that's a project that I'm I'm pursuing right now, working more on this in the coming years, where I look at the impact of digitalization on education, seen from this business power perspective. And the the paper that you mentioned in with Kathy Thielen is a start, a first step in that direction. But I, I want to go a little bit further because if you look at, especially again the case of the United States, and here it's more about school policies or education, secondary education uh, sector you see uh, um, a really 
steep and a very impressive increase of the involvement of uh, tech companies in school systems. And uh, especially, I guess, if you look at the data and what's happened now during the pandemic, uh, this trend will probably be, right. uh, be even stronger. The discourse here is, is kind of biased uh, because on the background of the rise of the knowledge economy, sort of, it's a no-brainer to say we need more tech companies in schools and then You know, Google supplies these uh, hundreds of laptops for free to right. uh, schools in, in uh, low SES school districts. That's great. And they even provide the software for free. And so uh, what the, the argument that we make in that paper is that uh, there is something like inst institutional sources of business power. So once business actors are involved, deeply involved and entrenched in the governance structure of a certain Uh, education system, for instance, it's very difficult to get them out again of this because they have this institutionalized position. The state actors depend on the continued contribution of these business actors um, to the system, for instance, by providing the right software, uh, hardware tools, and so on. Of course, uh, they also get uh, compensation for that. And I think this could actually be a very transformative change of how education works and how it will work in 10, 20 years from now. And actually, if you look at the publications uh, uh, in that, in that uh, the more positive, uh, optimistic publications in that area, they, of course, they, they make exactly that point. This could be the, the advent of a new type of education system. And I'm, I'm not saying that this is all bad or, or good. I think the normative implications are very complex and need to be discussed. But I'm, if you look at this from the business power perspective, it simply means that an actor uh, that has been very much at the sidelines in that sector so far is suddenly becoming a pretty central actor in this. And it's not just about supply of laptops for school children. It's also about the way the whole educational process is organized. The, the, the buzzword here is uh, personalized education. So if you have a sophisticated technology And then you can basically design software that provides uh, individualized learning experiences for, for all the different students. And, and again, that may be good or maybe bad, but it changes the whole logic of the education system because the relationship between the student and the teacher is a completely different one. The teacher is not so much a, an educator anymore that kind of directs the learning process within the social context of the school or classroom, but it's becoming more of a tutor in supporting these individualized learning processes that basically happen at the individual level of, of individual uh, students. And, and so I think that is a quite strong transformation of how education systems work. And uh, even though I say the normative implications are complex, I would say I personally think that there are some risks involved there. Uh, at least it's a pretty big bet because it, the, the schools are not just a place where learning takes place, but it's also a social uh, environment where people, where students learn all sorts of skills uh, that are not directly related to what is written in the school books, but that are evolving in the context of the school as a social environment. And this, these kind of social aspects they become yeah, a little bit threatened or, or at least challenged by, by, these, uh, by these developments. And so, yeah, that's one part of, uh, part of this. And, um, and I think in more in the area of vocational training, that's the second, second uh, part of the story, I would say. You can see, and that's essentially also what I mentioned before, you can see that vocational training moves more towards the skill needs of the firms as they, because they are under pressure in economic, uh, clo economically globalized markets. And then also higher education institutions are becoming challenged to become more cost effective. They are becoming challenged to provide more 
practical skills that can be uh, directly implemented on the labor market. So in other words, there's also a pretty strong trend of uh, giving more uh, weight to uh, the economic needs of uh, firms that, that, that would hire these uh, university or VET graduates. So I think this, this is quite an important overall trend. And it's something that is not that's not been going on for a long time. It's something that is that is really intensifying in the last 10, 15 years, I would say. And so it's something that is that is still developing. And and I uh, I tend to I intend to to observe it closely. That's yeah, we're we're looking forward to what you uh, can report. I just want to push you a little bit on what the implications of this increased business involvement would be, because you you could obviously argue that well, you know, since uh, there need to be a lot of investments made, right? You've pointed out that the state is to some extent constrained by, um, you know, fiscal imperatives. Of course, wouldn't it be good that um, the actors that seem to be gaining a lot from very well-educated workers, that they're more involved, right, in, in that process? So I just want to push you a little bit on what exactly the dangers are here, right? Because is it not the case that ultimately the state has the authority to do withdraw that ability from, from those businesses again, right, if they wanted to? Or what is standing in the way of them doing that? That's, um, that, that, that's exactly the, the, the argument that we also faced in the review process of that said article. <laughs> um, uh, and, and I think that the answer here is, is this exactly this, this institutional feedback argument, right? So... Because it, you know, as we know from theories of path dependence and, and historical institutionalism, uh, once you go down a certain path, it's increasingly difficult to change that. So once you change the governance structure of a system um, uh, in a certain way, uh, you just cannot go back to the start uh, because it will, the cost of doing so will become increasingly high. And to, to give a concrete example, uh, and that's also the example that we used in the, in the in the paper, and it's again a vocational training system in Germany. But but here the, the the firms are so embedded in the system that if at some point the firms would say, well, we stop offering apprenticeship uh, places to to the next uh, cohort of young people, uh, then the whole system would break down, and the state cannot take over the financing of this in the short term because it would lead to an explosion of the the budget for for vocational training. So that's not feasible to just simply at some point if it doesn't work anymore to say, okay, let's go back to the old um, status quo before. And, and that, that is, in other words, this is a, just, a, the, again, an issue of business, pow business power because then in, if you are in that situation, then the, the impact of um, uh, these uh, business interests becomes stronger the longer they are or the better they are embedded in the system. And I, I, I see your point about this. Isn't it good that, that we need uh, support from private businesses in, in um, getting this done or not? And in, in the end, it's a political question. So there are, of course, people from different areas of uh, the political spectrum that may, might say this is, a, this is great and others might be very critical. So this is not a purely academic discussion. This is a very much a political discussion. I would say, if I may go out a little bit on the political limp here, I think the, the, the danger is to some extent that um, you, you replicate market failures uh, in, the, in the education system, that, that, whereas the, the purpose of the education system is actually to correct market failures or to prevent market failures from, uh, from emerging in the first place. And again, this, this thing with the general and specific skills is a good example for this, because the market failure here is if you, if you don't have any correcting mechanism or any kind of mechanism that forces employers to invest in a broader set of skills, then the, the urge, the temptation is to just invest in short-term skills uh, or the skills that are immediately needed on the job. 
And that is, uh, that is uh, uh, both not so good for the worker because she will just have very specific skills and not be able to transfer these skills to other jobs, uh, which leads to lower wages for that specific worker. And of course, it's especially relevant for workers in the lower half of the skill distribution because they are uh, kind of at the losing end of this bargaining process for the high-skilled workers. You don't have to worry about them. But on the, and, and, and secondly, it's also a danger in the sense that it, 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 it potentially affects the ability, the long-term ability of the economy to adjust to changing circumstances. So if you just look at, uh, if you just prioritize short-term skill investment, you can say, okay, this is great because the system reacts very fast to changing needs. But, but you know, there's a lot of, if this is too much short-term oriented, you, you prevent uh, uh, long-term skill uh, strategies from emerging that are needed to uh, just increase the overall skill level in the population to make sure that if there are new needs uh, uh, arriving that nobody has foreseen that the system can adjust quite uh, quickly to this. And so I think that's uh, that's the danger here. If you if you just prioritize these short-term concerns too much, then you might end up in a situation where you find the system is kind of uh, just running behind what's what's happening. Whereas if you have a more uh, public component in the system, you just invest, for instance, in basic research. You invest in uh, broad training of workers uh, and not just the very specific skill needs that they that they need on the job. And uh, I think that's that's a kind of uh, quite concrete risk that might be associated with such a strategy. Aren't firms also to some extent tied to specific geographies? Aren't they also, like skill investments are co-locational and co-specific, one could argue. So you've implicitly assumed that firms could just um, on, on a bad day, right, say like, well, you know, this is not working for us anymore. We're going to leave. One potential rebuttal to that would be to say, well, the reason that they're in a location is because they need access to workers that of a specific skill level, right? Which is why they get involved in this system to begin with. So the question would then be, aren't they then also path dependently woven into this system, which prevents them from leaving? To some extent, I would say yes, absolutely. But I think the, um, uh, the difference that, 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 that matters here is not so much what happens with the people at the upper end of the skill distribution, the highly skilled people, because for them, this argument is very uh, strong uh, and they don't really have to worry about this, but it, it, it's more relevant for the people in the lower uh, segments of the skill distribution. Right. Yeah, I would say the risk is pretty strong and increasingly so, especially now with digitalization. Uh, and I think the LMEs are really affected more by this than the CMEs. Uh, you know, uh, maybe also because simply there are more English-speaking people around in the world. Uh, but everybody who's who's written, submitted journal articles uh, in the recent years, you can see that that more and more of the copy editing and proofreading is not taking place in the UK or in the US, but in in other parts of the world. Mm. Uh, and of course, this kind of white-collar jobs, or previously white, or I mean, there are white-collar jobs, office jobs that 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 have been very difficult to relocate in the past they are now you can just relocate them very easily and uh, there's uh, that's what i said before if you don't if you only have this very strong separation between specific very specific skills on the job training on the one hand and uh, very general skills yeah. on the other hand then then the danger of this relocation is is very pronounced because you can e easily uh, provide a very specific on the job training to to the workers in India, for instance, to get the training that they need for that specific task. And here, I, I'm of course very much inspired by the work of Wolfgang, Wolfgang Strick on beneficial mm -hmm. constraints. I would say, 
his basic argument is that business actors themselves cannot set up the kind of collective institutional frameworks that are needed to really force them to make these long-term skill decisions they, right. because they always succumb to these short-term pressures and urges, right? To me, I, I totally buy that argument. So if, unless you don't have workers involved in these decisions via corporatist institutions or public um, actors that, that have the educational interest of parents and students in mind, then, then it's very difficult to create uh, these incentives for long-term skill investments. Because if, if that were as easy as that, you would, we, we would not have a problem of skill underinvestment, especially for these long-term skill investment uh, strategies. So I think uh, in order to, to make that work, you need a kind of multi-stakeholder education system that combines, that brings together different interests of different stakeholders in the system, including also teachers to some extent, in, in setting this in, in motion. And so if, if, if then the governance structure becomes biased too much to the favor of one particular actor and name a business, then this thing does not work anymore. And so you need a multi-stakeholder governance structure to make sure that these long-term uh, skill investment strategies actually work. Marius Busemeyer, thank you so much. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Political Economy Forum podcast. Please feel free to listen to our other episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You might also like our special podcast on election security, Neither Free Nor Fair, which is hosted by Professor James Long and is also available on all major platforms. Our podcasts are produced by Morgan Wack and myself, Nicholas Wittstock. Our theme music was created by Ted Long. Please feel free to leave a review as we're curious about your feedback and if you have any questions, suggestions, or concerns, please contact uwpoliticaleconomy at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you.